Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences today broadcasting live from West Palm Beach, Florida in my hotel room. Good to be on the road. Very special guest today, Eric Mirzma. Uh, and Eric, you're, in, you're over in uh, San Diego, correct? I am. I am. I don't know how that compares to West Palm Beach, but we seem to have picked a couple nice spots. Perfect. Uh, beach. So we're going beach to beach kind of here. Um, Eric, I read, <laughs> I, I read your bio and I found it fascinating. Can you Tell us about what you did before you were an attorney and how that helps you be an attorney today in the industries that you work in. <laughs> well, you know, I did a lot of stuff to get through school, but I think the thing that I probably had the most fun doing and what most informs my, me now is I was a licensed uh, OTR driver. Um, I worked for a couple different companies and uh, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, spent some time driving and got to see a lot of the country, met a lot of people and learned a lot about the lifestyle and the rules and, and just, you know, what it's like to be out there. And I, I think that really helps me relate to my clients, especially the drivers. I mean, I have a little bit of an insight into what these poor guys have to go through day to day. Wow. Um, that's, that, that's really, really in incredible. I don't want to hear about the truck stop stories. We're just going <laughs> to, we're going to, we're going to leave those out of this particular podcast, if that's okay. Good. That's okay. Excellent, excellent. And, and I'll, I'll pretend that my logbooks were always in perfect order as well. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Now, do you, you also do some construction litigation? I do, yes. I, I uh, cut my teeth doing construction litigation in Southern California. And, uh, you know, all the tract home developments out here and big condo buildings downtown and that really taught me a lot about indemnity and risk management, risk transfer, complex litigation. And I find that those skills really transfer well to trucking litigation with multiple parties and lots of interesting, you know, lease arrangements and so on. That's, that's, that's incredible. Uh, great experiences to, of course, bring in, in, into law. How would you compare and contrast those two areas of litigation? Because I'm sure they both have their unique headaches, right? <laughs> they really do. And you know, what I found in construction is, is you're often blessed to be working with very sophisticated clients who have a lot of experience in the industry, of course, but then also with litigation. I mean, it's a accepted fact of life in Southern California and probably in most places, if you build something, you might get sued for it. And, um, you know, they've, they've learned the hard way over the years how to manage those risks, either through their contracts up front or during the litigation. You know, they have people who are experienced at giving deposition, who are experienced at producing documents. Now, when I get into the, the trucking arena, what I see is, is uh, me in particular, I work with a lot of smaller operators, a lot of smaller companies. Mm -hmm. And for most of them, this may be the first time they've ever been sued. They have zero litigation experience. And... Um, you know, we can kind of get into that a little bit, I think, but these these guys are really struggling to understand just what's happening to them. Um, they're at a completely different level. And so I find myself having to do a lot more education with with uh, the trucking companies and, um, you know, hopefully it pays off for them. Yeah, that, that's a that's an excellent point. Um, before we go any further, tell us a little bit about tell us about the firm. Tell us about the, the types uh, of cases that that you handle and uh, maybe a little bit of uh, background on the, uh, on the law firm. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm a member at Balistrieri, Pataki and Holmes, and uh, we're uh, a boutique law firm that just uh, do a little bit of everything. We specialize in general civil litigation, construction, uh, transportation, employment. Uh, we do some auto dealership uh, law as well as get into some uh, premises liability. And we even work with uh, draft beer and cannabis companies in, in San Diego. So we've been uh, continuously expanding our business and, you know, trying to, like the rest of the world during COVID, adapt and move on. And, and uh, yeah, we've, I've, I've worked at this firm now since I was a law clerk, since way back in the day. We won't say when that was. <laughs> You don't want to hate yourself, Eric? I mean, come on. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, it, it's it, uh, a lot of the people have been with us a long time. And I think that says a lot about our collegiality and the work environment. And, and, and it also helps us build a really professional uh, set of goals and standards when we represent our clients. That's, that, that's outstanding. Now, you and I have done a podcast before uh, for DRI. And uh, I think that was a great series of, of, of podcasts. You know, and something that always comes up, whether it's construction litigation, uh, whether it is um, transportation litigation, is the, uh, the deep importance of effective witness performance, both at deposition and trial. Uh, and now that you have you know, a very active uh, plaintiff's bar that's using a lot of uh, reptile tactics, uh, tell, tell me how you approach uh, you, when you work with your witnesses and, and, and what you know that you need to accomplish. Because as we both know, if witnesses don't perform well, that could lead to very, very bad things, meaning you know, nuclear verdicts and or nuclear settlements. It is. I, you know, kind of the first rule of, of getting ready for a witness, uh, dep witness's deposition, or just in, in general dealing with your client is to avoid surprises. Um, I find that the very first thing I do that gets me the best information is, it's maybe this is obvious, is, is getting a hold of your client, your driver or the safety officer or whoever is in charge at the motor carrier and just talking to them and interviewing them, getting as much information from you and trying to build that rapport so they trust you and you in turn can trust them a little bit that they're not holding something back or there's some skeleton in their closet. And you know what I find, we touched on this earlier, is I deal with everything from companies who have professional witnesses. Um, these folks are big operators. They've got people in-house that are always produced as the person most knowledgeable or the person most qualified. They, uh, some of these people are trained uh, to the nth degree. Um, they, they do mock trials. They have lawyers, you know, prep them endlessly just for practice. <laughs> um, and, and you really know what to expect and they really know the company and they know how to respond to reptile tactics. At the other end of the extreme where I'm, I'm usually find myself is <laughs> dealing with witnesses <laughs> who've got no experience whatsoever. Um, and and they may, there may even be a language barrier as well. And, and when, you're, when you're having to deal with that, I spend a lot of time just, uh, you know, trying to educate them, trying to teach them what a deposition is, or, you know, I can't even get into the nuances of reptile theory. I just have to make sure they they pronounce their name correctly. And, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's that I think so. My biggest concern with those witnesses is to just go over and over 
their story with them or their version of events and and try to get all the facts, try to explain to them why some of this stuff is important, you know, why it's why it's important that they don't say things like, yeah, of course, my goal is always to be the safest driver on the road or you know, <laughs> something like that. And and it clicks. You know, they're smart people, but they're just inexperienced. And so if you can show them, you know, the plaintiff is going to ask this question and here's why it's really important, you know, and, and you kind of have to take them down that road. So it's a lot more time intensive. You have to spend a lot more time with them. And, and frankly, that's even hampered by the cases that are involved. If you've got some small little case, man, your carrier or whoever's paying your bills is not going to want to see you run up hours and hours and hours of witness prep time. Um, so that can be a challenge too, but I, uh, definitely you see the results pay off when you when you see the light go on in your witnesses eyes they get it and now you've given them the tool to handle those curveballs in deposition where you can't possibly prepare them for everything that's going to happen you can just try and teach them the what to do if it does happen yeah i i think witness training and preparation i provide more of the psychological emotional you know cognitive behavioral uh training uh, I, I think it's really worth uh, every penny because it can really save millions on on the back end, and it, it helps your it helps your client, and it definitely helps uh, someone like a driver. How do you how do you deal with these very sensitive topic of witness preparation of a witness that has been terminated, and now they're a family employee? Wow, you know, <laughs> very. Very carefully, exactly, and it depends. The other good lawyer answer. Um, I actually have a case where I'm dealing with that right now. The the, uh, the driver quit about a week after the accident, never told his boss the accident had even happened, and uh, months later they got sued. And the owner's like, "What happened? I've no idea. First I've ever heard of this." Um, so I, I guess the biggest issue for me in dealing with the witness who's no longer an employee is is why did they leave? You know, were they on good terms or bad terms? Were they fired? You know, sometimes people just move on or maybe they get laid off because there wasn't enough business, enough work for them. Um, I want to find that out as early as possible. Um, sometimes the witness, the driver or the employee can be a better witness for you than the actual employer. Um, you know, they, they just don't know what happened or they don't care. Or, you know, there's all types out there. So my, my first goal is always is to get as much information on the front side as possible and and try to make that former employee understand why he should care about this at all <laughs> which is often difficult um to try to to try to to try to motivate them um well, i could probably use you bill in that respect i mean that's the psychological aspect is you know how do you get these people to be motivated yeah and i see like like this is your name on the line i mean you know especially if they didn't do anything uh wrong or it's very limited liability to say you know why are you going to let this plaintiff attorney do you know they're going to drag your name through the mud at trial right i mean let's not let this happen and then show that even though they're not an, uh, an employee anymore that you're there to you know provide you know the emotional support particularly um to them because you know litigation is a very stressful um process and i think all witnesses um need that need that type of of, of support now you know we've yeah, everybody knows uh, about the driver shortage. Um, this has increased the percentage uh, consistently of foreign-born drivers. Um, so let's throw another wrinkle into witness preparation. When yeah. you have the both language and oftentimes a cultural barrier, 
in my experience, talk about taking baby steps. I mean, um, it's a very slow process with the foreign born witness. And oftentimes they come in with a lot of illogical fears and anxieties because it's a cultural issue and maybe they're scared of the American legal system. Um, how much are you seeing of, 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 of that in the industry? A lot, oh, an awful lot. Um, I would, and it particularly affects me here in San Diego because we are obviously next to an international border. So I deal with a lot of cross-border traffic. I deal with a lot of drivers who um, were born and raised in Mexico and may even still live across the border, but, you know, across the border to drive over here and work here. And, and, um, and often, you know, we have, you know, the, 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 the Spanish that's spoken in Southern California is, is, is a unique language all to itself. And so <laughs> there's a lot of different terminology and words that, that, that don't easily translate. So I have a very large roster of interpreters that I work with. And I also work with a lot of Iraqis, a lot of Persian drivers. Um, and it comes back to trying to understand and meet your client. Um, that first phone call is so important. You know, you're, you, you try to figure out who they are. You learn about their experience. Um, I see, I see some people that are working here that were very successful business people in another country and they've come to this country and maybe at one point they were, you know, they owned their own construction company or maybe their own trucking company or, or were doctors or lawyers or whatever. And they find themselves in the U S and trucking jobs because there is a shortage, they can get those jobs and they can get hired and try to get their feet on the ground, but they're very smart, very educated people. And so working with them, once you, you, you explain the legal system and how it works to them, they're usually quite easy to work with. They grasp the concepts quickly. Um, the flip side of that coin is, is I get folks who find themselves in a driver's seat who have very little education, have very little understanding or sophistication about the legal system, and it is a huge uphill battle. Um, and at some point, all you can do is try to just, um, you know, the truth will set you free. You know, just just tell me what happened and don't say anything else ever. <laughs> Shut up. Um, let's, let's switch gears a little bit to construction litigation. My experience with that, which is very different than transportation, is that there's typically multiple defendants, contractors, subcontractors, owners, and talk up. I mean, the finger pointing that goes on is absolutely incredible in construction uh, litigation. What, what is your approach uh, when, when you're, you're working up a file? And you pretty much know three other parties are probably going to be pointing at, at you. <laughs> yeah, construction, that's, that's the name of the game, right? I mean, yeah. uh, we've, we've represented a ton of general contractors and developers over the years. And that is always, you know, you're the biggest target and you also have hopefully the best contracts. So first thing you're doing is you're like, who else can I bring into this mess? You know, what subcontractors can I do? Are there design issues that you know, need to be dealt with and brought in? And, uh, you know, you throw in different types of insurance, maybe there's OSIP policies or route policies, and you're going to get countersued or you're going to have to defend the whole mess. So you're, you're really looking around carefully. Um, and, you know, and if you're a subcontractor, you're, you're always looking for, you know, who else is going to counterclaim against me? Maybe I'm a framer. And, you know, so now there, there's going to be all kinds of issues that they're going to come after me. The, the drywall guy is going to sue me because there's cracks in his drywall and he's going to blame my framing because it's crooked or something like that or, or moved. Um, you know, and uh, trucking, it's a little different. You know, when, when you come into trucking and you, you, you're looking around for who there could be for multiple defendants or co-defendants, um, 
you get some interesting situations. I mean, there's the obvious, you know, maybe the shipper or the broker or somebody like that. Um, but not only so obvious are, you know, when there are joint ventures or there are other, uh, maybe there's other drivers even, maybe there was a team driver or something that somehow got involved with this. Maybe there's uh, uh, the, the, you get these unique arrangements with owner operators and who they're leasing their equipment to and who's actually providing their, their paycheck or their insurance or doing the maintenance on it. You know, we all know these, all these different entities and you got to really start to figure out um, you know, in, in those cases, honestly, I like to work with the experts early on. Um, you know, tell me, is there a mechanical problem with this that contributed to the accident? Should I be looking for the maintenance guys to see what happened? Or, you know, if I'm looking at the lease agreement and I see some really complex language going back and, and I find out that the person who owns the truck has nothing to do with the driver or the <laughs> motor carrier or the dispatcher, all kinds of questions start to come up. So you got to do that early investigation and research and, and, if you if you have the luxury of time before you have to respond to your complaint and get that cross complaint on file, uh, you know you can try to do a little of that. But sometimes you got to shoot in the dark and just stick that cross complaint out there with a bunch of does and <laughs> hope for the best. Hey, all is fair in love and war. Oh man, um, let's bring up a a very difficult uh, topic because I've been getting a lot of phone calls on this. Um, cases in which. Um, you're admitting liability. Um, probably never the place you want to be, right? Um, particularly for trial preparation. What is your philosophy? Because no one agrees on this. No one agrees on this. <laughs> you know, I'm a big fan of counter anchoring and really attacking uh, the plaintiff's uh, completely inflated uh, numbers as early as possible and early and often um, at trial. But then the type of tone that you take, you have to, you're, you're skating on thin ice when you're admitting liability, right? Yeah, you really are. Um, it, it, it's a kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, at least in California, you, you do get some benefits from admitting liability. You can try to take the motor carrier out of the picture and get rid of those negligent entrustment, negligent hiring, you know, the motor carrier's record. You know, if you've got a real fly-by-night operator and, and the driver is clearly at fault for this, it might be the best thing to admit liability and just get that whole mess out of the way. Um, in other circumstances, it's, you know, the jury's going to want to know, <laughs> why are we only talking about damages here? And, and even if nothing comes in, no evidence about liability um, or, you know, that type of thing. You, you still have that unanswered question and that can almost be worse than just, just fighting about it in court. But I, I think if you, you know, if you take the approach, and I think you have to, maybe you can tell me what you've heard and that's different than this, but once you've admitted liability, you've pretty much committed yourself to telling the jury that, look, this was an accident. It, it happened. Bad things happen to, to good people. There's, you know, through no fault of their own, but you know, they're trying to take advantage here. Um, this, this, this isn't, you know, yeah, we rear-ended them, but we were going a mile and a half. And our expert says there's no way this this required spinal surgery. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you do what you got to do. Yeah, and I think um, putting the plaintiff attorney on trial is often uh, highly effective. Uh, you know, showing a lot of sympathy to you know uh, the plaintiff, but really putting that that number to say, listen, this is not the California state lottery, ladies and gentlemen, this is an accident and remind them, remind the jurors that their job is to be fair and to be, and to be, and to be reasonable. I had a case down there um, with uh, Liz Skane, who uh, is a local attorney down there. 
and we're we're in a really really bad case and we were liable and we admitted liability and uh, I helped Liz construct her opening statement she said the words fair and reasonable 18 times <laughs> that's a good strategy actually um, you know one of the things I always do yeah when I when I depose the plaintiff I always ask them um, who's paying your medical bills you know, you know, yeah. what treatment did you get? Who paid for that? Did you get a bill? Yeah, I, I mean, and they often just, I don't know why they're not more prepared for that question. You'd think it's obvious, but they, they always kind of have a blank look on their face. Well, I don't know. Well, how are you going to pay for it? I don't know. Are you going to pay for it for this lawsuit? Uh, I, I guess. <laughs> and it, incredible. Yeah. Um, let's wrap this up here and hit kind of an obvious topic is, uh, you know, the impact on COVID. Well, I think you have three things going. I've been telling everybody this because we've been doing a lot of jury research. Everybody's like calling me like, well, what has COVID done to the jury pool? What has it done to the, to the witnesses, right? But, but there's, there's two other things going on. Um, the highest level of social unrest in, in the history of America, even worse than 1968, in my opinion. Um, and the political tension, right? So you have the George Floyd effect, you have the Trump uh, election effect, then you have COVID. Um, talk about you. I mean, that's like a perfect storm <laughs> right there. <laughs> and um, um, it's, it's, um, I know in our jury research, what we've seen is um, people aren't being nice to each other <laughs> per se. Uh, they're uh, a, a lot, I think I've seen a lot more uh, emotion from jurors. Um, People have completely stopped listening to each other. Uh, and a lot of that happened pre all this stuff, but I, I think I've seen that get, get, get worse. What are you and your firm doing to try to put your heads together so then things start opening up, you're back in courtrooms to make sure that you're adjusting uh, appropriately? Because I know the plaintiff's bar, they're salivating over this opportunity coming up and they think they're gonna, they're, they're going for blood, they are. Yeah, it's it's it it, it it's kind of like a big pile of dry wood soaked in gasoline, just waiting for the right match to come along. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's you want to think that politics don't intrude into a trial; that it's all objective and fact-based, and and everybody's just going to tell their story, and you're going to have a perfect jury that's just going to put aside their personal biases and and follow the law. And of course, we all know that never happens. So. Um, you know, personally and in the firm, what I see is, is you know, depending on the size of the case, if it's a big enough case, you, you're going to get a jury consultant in there and they're going to really work with you. Um, I've even done this with cases in real time. I've had some really good juror, you know, as the jurors' names are being announced, you know, somebody, you know, is texting them back and they've got a team there who's running their social media accounts and figuring out who they are and what they're all about and, and try to develop, you know, who has these internal biases and what you can do about it. The reality is, is, is my approach to jury selection is always you try to weed out the worst of the bunch. <laughs> um, you know, if, if, and, you know, you, you hope and you can't do that based on, you know, a lot of these political and, and social media type things. But what you can do is, is try to understand their, their viewpoint. You know, how do they approach life? How are they likely to see your client? And you really have to know your client and your company. How, how are they going to be perceived? Um, 
is is this a guy who's got face tattoos in a truck with a big chrome jaws over the grill? You know, how's he going to be perceived <laughs> uh, by a jury? First, is he, uh, you know, uh, you know, a 60-year-old Spanish gentleman and a grandfather who's been a truck driver for 40 years and never had an accident and, you know, he's got 25 grandkids? You know, that might be a whole different kind of defendant that you want to put on there. Um, I, I, I just, I don't worry too much about the political point but I, I, I do worry about the COVID aspect of this as just as it affects everybody's willingness to be there. Yep. Um, do they really want to hear a bunch of people fighting over a pot of money when the whole world is burning and you know people are just trying to get by? <laughs> they may not. Or, or they're sitting at home collecting their stimulus checks and they're, they're not working. I mean, it, it kind of cuts both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, and we get a lot of... of you know, we're a military town and we've got a lot of biotech out here. We, we get an interesting jury pool. They tend to be, you know, relatively uh, conservative, I think. And you also tend to get fairly educated jurors, um, not just retirees. But, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned, you know, sitting at home collecting stimulus checks. The stimulus checks has nothing to do with this thought. But the idea I've had people on the jury who were software developers and game programmers, and they literally sat at home on their laptop all day. And they were incredibly smart, very educated, but they could take all the time in the world and were totally intellectually curious about being on a jury. And that can just throw you for a loop sometimes. You don't know how these people are going to how to decide. <laughs> yeah, we, I know that we've, we've got a lot of work to do, but uh, Eric, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I would love to work with you in the very near future. So keep in touch. And I'm sure we, we will be keeping in touch as we start to learn more about jury behavior uh, as we are really cranking uh, towards 2022 uh, at, at a pretty good clip here. Yes, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, your services are, are just worth their weight in gold. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, 2022, I have state courts out here. I, I've gone in and asked for a six-month trial continuance and got it stuck out 18 months without any asking from me. So <laughs> no. a, lot of, a lot of work, a lot of work around the corner. Eric, thank you. And to our audience, thank you so much again for participating in the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, Bill.